0: We are starting this brand new series that we are calling the Red Letter Challenge, a 40-day journey of looking at what Jesus has to say and putting those words into practice. It's called the Red Letter Challenge because in many Bibles, when you open up to your pages and you find a quote from Jesus, it is in red letters. Uh, And so we want to take a closer look at these over these next several weeks and see how these uh, words uh, ultimately shape our understanding of who we are and how we live in the world. So I think it's only right that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us by taking a moment uh, to bow our heads in prayer. Would you pray uh, with me, please? Lord Jesus, indeed, in, in your word, we do indeed find a strong rock, a rock upon which we stand in all of life's seasons. And so Lord, as we come before your word this morning, we ask that you would indeed give us wisdom, that you would open our hearts and minds, that we would hear the word that you have for us, and truly indeed take it to heart. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer, amen. I don't know if you are like me, but I tend to get really curious about everyday things. Uh, Every so often, the mood strikes me where I look at something and I start to wonder, where did that actually come from? How did we get that? And this morning, the thing that was on my mind was the mirror, actually. Uh, It's something that I look into every single day. My, My guess is it's something you look into as you're brushing teeth or getting ready to go to work. And I stopped and I had to ask myself, where do we actually get these from? How, how, how long have we actually been utilizing the mirror? And so as I was, uh, I actually did a little bit of research this morning, was kind of looking at it, and I realized that for the vast majority of human history, we actually didn't have mirrors, which means that for most of us, we never really knew what we looked like unless somebody else like, took a pic- like, painted a picture of us or made a sculpture or simply what they told us. The best that humans had was we could look into like, pools of water or maybe highly polished metal uh, to kind of get a sense of what we looked like. But it wasn't until the Renaissance that they started to develop highly reflective mirrors. And even then, it wasn't until the mid-19th century that they kind of perfected that method. And, and now something that we take for granted every single day was, was a novelty back then. But a mirror is incredibly useful. We use them all the time. We use mirrors in order to navigate on the road and to make sure that there's nobody in our blind spots or behind us. We use mirrors in order to get ready for the day and, and make sure that we're set to go out uh, to work. Mirrors are a good thing, but, but there are sometimes I think, when we look in the mirror and we're not actually pleased with what we see. If any of you had that morning when you kind of woke up and you looked in the mirror and you're just like, ooh. Maybe it's just that today is the bad hair day day. Or maybe it's there's that leftover bit of spinach that's still in your teeth. Whatever it is, there are times when we look in the mirror and we're actually kind of uncomfortable with what we see. That a mirror, while at times helpful, can also be a little bit disconcerting. The reason I bring that up is because I think that there are actually moments in life that I would call mirror moments. Moments when something happens or we encounter something and suddenly it reveals something about us that maybe we're a little bit surprised by, maybe a little uncomfortable with. You see, it was a couple of years ago that I had one of these mirror experiences. I was working as a college minister at the University of Illinois at Chicago and we decided we were going to do an outreach event on campus and so the way that the event worked is we uh, set up uh, outside the student union and we uh, put together three boards. And on each of these boards, there was the same thing uh, on the the main part of the board. We we listed a whole bunch of different issues, issues that currently face our society today, issues like politics and poverty, sexuality and racism, injustice and mental health and wholeness. We even included a section uh, for other where people could write in an issue. But what made each of these boards different was the question that was along the top. See, on the first board, we simply asked the question, what issues do you care about? And we gave students these little, like, sticky dots, and they could go up to the board, and they could mark, you know, kind of the top three issues that mattered to them. Or if they didn't see an issue that mattered to them, they could take a Post-it note, and they could write that down and stick it in the other category. But then as they moved along, they went to the second board. And the second board asked this question, what issues do you think Christians care about? Same issues, different questions. They would go along and they would mark it on the board. And then they got to the last board and the question was, what issues does Jesus care about? Now, the mirror moment came for me when I looked at those boards at the end of the day. Because it was at the end of the day that I saw that there was a massive disparity between how students answered the question, what issues does Jesus care about? Versus answering the question, what issues do Christians care about? When I looked at the Jesus board, there were dots all over the place. People saying, I think Jesus would care about poverty. I think he would care about injustice. I think that he would care about things like racism and so on and so forth. And there were also lots of other issues that they thought Jesus would care about, kind of filling it in in the other category. But then I looked at the what issues do Christians care about, and the board was almost blank, with the exception of the other category. The other category was packed and was actually spilling over into the other parts of the board with Post-its picked off one of those post-its and said, I really don't think that Christians care about any of these issues. They only care about what matters to them and their community. Another one said, I think the only thing that Christians care about is who is sitting in their pew and what color is the carpet going to be in the sanctuary. And while I might look at maybe that second one and be like, that's a little amusing, honestly, most of the comments that were made in that section were really raw. People saying, I don't really think that the church cares about the issues that we're faced with as a society. I think that the church is too inward focused, too judgmental, too hypocritical. This is revealing because, yeah, it was uncomfortable for me as a Christian hearing that. But also, it really touched on some research that was coming out at that time. See, the Barna Research Group had actually talked with young people, both in high school and college-age students who are not a part of the church, and they asked them the question, when you think of the church, when you think of Christians, what comes to mind? And these were the words that most often popped up. They said Christians are hypocritical, insincere, anti-gay, sheltered, too political, judgmental, old-fashioned, and boring. Dave Kinneman entitled his book Unchristian. And the reason he titled that is not because they were surveying those who are not a part of the church. That's not the reason he gave it that title. He actually called the book Unchristian because that's what the young people were saying about the church. They are saying, It strikes me that the church and the Christians today are out of step with the Jesus they say they follow. That the church is actually unchristian. Now, we could step back. For a moment and look at that, and we can say, well, there's a lot of reasons why the church is, you know, being maligned today. I mean, honestly, let's be real, the, the church has gotten bad press, hasn't it? I mean, some of the ways in which the church is portrayed in media and in movies, I mean, surely that's influencing these young people's opinions. But that's where David Kinnaman's research is so helpful, because he says, no, that's actually not it at all. That all of their impressions of the church were formed through firsthand experience in their relationships with Christians. It was because they'd been burned by the church. It was because when they encountered Christians, they encountered people that were insincere and hypocritical, judgmental, too political, boring, self-centered. In many ways, what they encountered was a church that professed to follow Jesus and yet, quite honestly, just looked like the rest of the world. In fact, Zach Zender, the guy who wrote the Red Letter Challenge, who wrote the book that we're using as a part of this series, says this. He says, many of those outside of Christianity reject Jesus because they feel rejected by Christians. And the question that I really want to ask as we begin the Red Letter Challenge is, where did we go wrong? How is it that we who profess to follow Jesus often give the impression that we're about everything other than putting his words into practice? Well, uh, to help us really think that through, I want to tell a story, actually, from the 2004 uh, Athens Olympics. I don't know if many of you remember back to the 2004 Olympics or if you even watched the 2004 Olympics, but there there was one competitor, uh, an American named Matthew Emmons, and he was competing in marksmanship. Now, Matthew Emmons, although young, had won almost every single major marksmanship competition in the world. Going into the Olympics, he was hands down the favorite to win. Most of the time when you look at different uh, events in the Olympics, people are asking the question, well, who's going to get the gold? But when it came to marksmanship, they were actually asking the question, who's going to take silver and bronze? Because it was assumed that Matthew Emmons was going to win. And sure enough, as he started to compete in the Olympics, he was dominant from the very, very beginning. Uh, Actually, um, he had already won two gold medals in two of the competitions early on. He was coming into his third contest. And he was so far ahead of everybody else that all he had to do was hit the target. He didn't even need a bullseye. I mean, think about that for a second. He had so many points going in that in a sport where winners are determined by the millimeter, all he had to do was just generally hit his target. And so Matthew Emmons goes in, and and he kind of steps up to the mark. And you can see him kind of look down the field toward his target, and he starts to take some deep breaths. The reason why he does this is because the way marksmen are trained is they are trained to slow their breathing down, and they only pull the trigger between the heartbeats. When their body is at its stillest. And you see him take these deep breaths and you see him raise his gun and look down the sights. And eventually he pulls the trigger. It hits the target a perfect bullseye. But there's a problem he hit the wrong target. He looked down the field and he fired and he hit a bullseye in the next lane over. This was the look on his face when he missed that shot. He was asked afterwards, what happened? Because the result of him shooting another target was not just that he lost that contest. It's, he didn't even come in silver or bronze. He came in eighth place. A man who was favored to win the gold, and he said, you want to know what? I forgot something. I was so focused on my breathing and stilling my heart rate that I forgot to look at the right target. Matthew Emmons was doing the right thing by stilling his heartbeat but he was off-center. He was focused in the wrong place. And the reason I share that story is because I think that we, as Christians, oftentimes focus our energy and our attentions on certain things that are important, but not the most important thing. That we spend a lot of time and activity doing important things, but not ultimately focused on the right target. And so the question is, if we are going to truly live out our faith well, uh, live out our faith in a way that speaks to the world around us about who Jesus is and about the grace and mercy that he has for us, we have to get our target right. Which is why I think it's so appropriate this morning, we ended up taking a look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now if you were to turn to um, the the Gospel of Matthew, what you find is the Sermon on the Mount is the longest um, section of Jesus' teachings that we have in the Bible. It goes all the way from the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 all the way to the end of Matthew chapter 7. And in there, Jesus talks a lot about how we live this life of faith. He talks a lot about what God expects of his people. He talks about things like forgiveness and loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. He talks a lot about how you use your money and, and how you compare or probably shouldn't compare yourself to others and so on and so forth. But he ends the Sermon on the Mount... One of the most rigorous moral codes in all of history with a story. The story goes a little something like this. There are two men who were building their homes. Each of them uh, got to work, establishing and laying a foundation, raising walls, putting up a roof. But then the wind and the rains came. And as the winds blew and beat against those homes, as the waters rose... The man whose house was built on the sand found that his house was swept away. But the man whose house was built on the rock found that his home was solid and untouched. Jesus says this about what made the difference between these two men. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. You see, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, Look, both these men heard my words. Both of these people received my teaching. But only one of them, the wise men, or the wise man, put them into practice. See, Jesus was saying, He's saying, Part of the problem with so many people when it comes to their religious walk is that they hear God's words, but they don't actually live on the basis of them. This is a huge problem in Jesus' day. There's this entire religious cast of people called the Pharisees. These were guys who were brilliant scholars of the scriptures. They had entire books of the Old Testament memorized by heart. They knew every one of the over 630 laws that you found in the Torah. They were doing their very best to to be good students and studiers of these words, but the reality was is that they hadn't put them into practice in the way that God had called them to put them into practice. They were busy with a lot of religious activity, but they missed the entire point because they didn't cling to what God had said. And I think that for us as Christians, this is part of our problem as well. We spend a lot of time reading the scriptures. And in fact, I've met many Christians who, are, who know far more about the Bible than I do. People who have studied long passages of scripture, who understand the original historical and cultural context of many of the books that we find written in here. People who even uh, know uh, languages like Hebrew and Greek who can read God's word in its original language. And yet so many of us with all that knowledge, fail to actually put it into practice. I heard a story uh, from a local pastor. His name is Dave Ferguson. Dave Ferguson pastors uh, the Compass, uh, not the Compass, uh, Community Christian Church here in Naperville. It's a very large church. At one point, he was confronted by some of the older members of his congregation. They came to him and they said, you know, Pastor Ferguson, we're very disappointed. And he said, why? He said, well, because you as a pastor don't teach pastor-led Bible studies. You're not teaching us classes on theology. You're not teaching us how to get deep into God's word. You're insisting that we get involved in small groups and that we study the word together. And and what we really want is we want you, the expert, to sit down and teach us and, and to disseminate all this knowledge. And this is Dave's response. He says, you don't need more classes because you already know more than you obey. He says, you don't need more classes. You already know more than you obey. When I see you starting to live out your faith, then we can talk about classes. Because what Dave knew and understood, is, he said the best classroom for actually growing in faith is life. And it's putting into practice what Jesus has already given to us. That's really what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, I desire that you would be like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. So that no matter what happens, you can stand in faith. But there's another reason why I think Jesus calls us to live out this life of faith. It's because often we're distracted. We're distracted. We think that being a Christian is simply about our church attendance. Or reading more books. Or putting our kids in Christian schools. All good things. But Jesus is saying you really need to stay focused on the one thing that matters. And that is what I have told you. What my word reveals about who I am. What I've done on your behalf and what it really means to walk with me. The reason why is because when you study God's words, what you quickly find is that it's not simply a list of rules. It's not simply a moral code. Rather, in it, we, we receive a gift from God. It's actually something that Jesus says a little bit later on in the Gospel of John chapter 10. He's talking about who he is and the life that he came to bring us. And this is what he says. Speaking to those teachers of the law, he says, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is saying that when you actually take a closer look at my life, when you look at what I have taught you, what you come to see is that I came into this world to save you. I came into this world not to give you a new set of laws for you to obey. I came to invite you into a journey. To invite you into a relationship with the one who's already paid the price on your behalf. To know the God who's laid down his life for you. And because he's done that, you are welcome in his presence. Jesus says it's not about cleaning your life up and getting it perfect. It's rather learning to live freely in the grace that you've already been given. It's about learning to live freely in the identity that you've received as a gift you are a child of God. You are forgiven, and you are renewed. I think it's beautiful that we're actually beginning this service on a baptism weekend. Neither one of these little children did anything to earn God's favor. And yet, God claims them as his own. She says, when you look at my words, what you see is you see the forgiveness that you've received and the life God has called you to live. A life lived not so that you earn something, but rather a life that's truly free. A life that's truly abundant. A life in which who you are is not determined by your performance, or by who you know, or by how much you've done, or what kinds of relationships you're in. No, a life that's determined ultimately by, by who God has called you to be, his forgiven children. Jesus says, this is why it's so important to study my word, because when you study my word, you begin to experience the kind of life that I've called you to live. But more than that, when you put it into practice, you will taste and see just how good this life truly is. You will see the abundant life and experience the abundant life that I've called you to live. And through you, others will come to know about that grace, about that good news. See, when I look at the life of Jesus, I don't find somebody who's hypocritical. I don't find someone who's insincere. I don't find someone who's harsh and judgmental. What I find is a man who's courageous, who's genuine, who welcomes all people regardless of who they are or where they come from. A man who's self-sacrificing and serving. A man who is willing to lay down his life for those who followed him. What I see is I see God enfleshed. God who came and dwelled with us. And Jesus is saying, if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, hear my words. Put them into practice. And you will experience the abundant life that I came to give you. It's as simple as that. I kind of love it when somebody makes something simple. when they're able to distill it down. I actually remember talking with uh, one of my college students, a guy by the name of Tim Knoll. Tim was an industrial designer, and I actually asked him one time, What's the hardest thing about being an industrial designer? And he said, It's simplicity. He says, Simplicity is the hardest thing to achieve because it means stripping something down to its most essential elements so that its natural beauty shines through. This was a sophomore in college guy is wise beyond his years, but he said simplicity is the hardest thing to achieve because it means stripping something down to its most essential elements so that its natural beauty shines through. Jesus is basically stripping down the Christian life to its simplest and most beautiful form. It means simply listening to his words and putting them into practice. That's it. Because it's in his words that again, we discover who we are, who God is, and what it means to walk with him all the days of our life. And that's really the invitation that we are called to take together as God's people over these 40 days. It's to delight in that simplicity and to walk it with joy and experience the freedom that Jesus has given us. And so as we begin the Red Letter Challenge, I just want to start you with two things. First and foremost, I want to give you a map to the challenge. And secondly, I want to talk about the company we keep as we go along the journey. Map to the challenge and the company that we keep. Back to the challenge, over the next 40 days, we're going to be focusing on what Jesus has to say about five things. The first thing is being. You see, one of the things I love about Jesus is that before he ever calls us to do anything for him, he simply calls us to do life with him. Before he ever says to do anything for him, he says, I want you simply to do life with me. And so in that first week, all we're going to be doing is focusing on what does it mean to have that relationship with Jesus? Who has God already declared us to be as his children? How does knowing him and his character shape us and our lives as we learn to walk with him? But then we're going to go in and we're going to talk a little bit about what Jesus has to say about forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the hardest things, I think, for many people to give. There's so many people say, if there's one thing I struggle with, it's being able to forgive the people who uh, have done me wrong. And Jesus tells us, he says says that we are to forgive our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Actually, not just to forgive them, to love them. How do we do that? Well, when we spend some time looking at how God has forgiven us, suddenly it makes that kind of radical forgiveness possible. We're going to look at God's extravagant forgiveness toward us and how that shapes our forgiveness and mercy in the world. We're going to also talk a little bit about what it means to serve, to truly use our gifts to bless other people. Because in Jesus, we encounter the ultimate servant, the one who is willing to lay down everything, who is willing to give up his throne in heaven to come down here and be with us. And we're going to see how God's service toward us shapes our service toward our neighbors. Then we're going to talk about uh, giving and generosity, how we can use the blessings God has given us to bless those around us by first and foremost looking at God's generosity toward us as his people. And how that extravagant generosity then shapes our generosity as we look at the needs of those around us and, and speak into them in practical, tangible, real and life-giving ways. And Last but not least, we're going to look at what it means to go. To live life on mission with God. To be a people who not only know the good news, but who share the good news with the world around us. That's where we're headed. But the other thing that we need to keep in mind is the company that we keep. You see, we're not meant to go on this journey alone. God didn't design it that way. Following Jesus is not just about us and Jesus is about us in the context of a family and in the context of community. And so really two relationships to focus on. First is I want to encourage you to invite Jesus into your Red Letter Challenge journey. It would be silly of us if we were trying to put Jesus' words into practice but actually didn't invite Jesus to be a part of the journey. Jesus actually says it beautifully when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And and what he says is he says, I want to do this journey with you. Let me be a part of this walk as we go through these 40 days together. But the second thing to consider is to consider inviting others into your red letter challenge journey. One of the things I find surprising is that very rarely does Jesus actually have a one-on-one conversation with anyone. That most of the discipleship that he does is in the context of community. That he doesn't just call one person to follow him. He calls a group of 12 to be his disciples. He disciples them in relationship with one another. Furthermore, Jesus said it this way. He says, where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. So you are not designed to walk this spiritual life alone you're spent, you're meant to walk it in relationship with others who are on the journey with you who can encourage you and inspire you and support you as you seek to live out what christ has called us to that's really what it means to take the red letter challenge is not simply to be hearers of the word but doers of the word but not simply be doers of the word but people who live out that word as an outflow of the relationship that we have with christ And so over these next 40 days, we're going to invite you to come and to taste and see that the Lord is good. To invite you to take up the challenge, to put his words to the test. And even if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, I don't know if I believe in this Jesus, then here's our invitation to you. Join us on the challenge and why don't you look at him for yourself? Put his words to the test. See if there's real wisdom there or not. But be a part of this journey because one of the things that I promise will happen is that your perspective will be changed. And you will come to see Christ as he is. And not simply as some have made him out to be. And so it's with that in mind, I want to begin the red letter challenge with a word of prayer. Would you, would you pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that Jesus, when you come and you give us your words, it's not to lay a new law on us, but it's to invite us into an amazing journey of life. And we pray that over these 40 days, as we really look at your words and put them into practice, that you would help us to see that not only are your words true, but they are life-giving. Life-giving for us, life-giving for those around us. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us, that you would give us strength and energy. But we pray also that you would draw us into community, that we would walk together and grow in faith side by side. And that through us, people would come to know of your grace and mercy as they see it being lived out in our daily lives. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.